All right. Well, listen, um, appreciate the updates and everything. We're going to jump back into our, our study today, continuing our study in Ephesians. Uh, so if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you'd like to find your way to Ephesians chapter 3, please. We skipped last week. Uh, we took a little time to consider a Sabbath rest. Uh, but before that, a week before, we read all of chapter 2. And in that chapter, Paul set up a sort of a contrast and compare uh, between the life that we used to live and the way we now live because of Jesus. So on a cosmic scale, he was talking about how we were separated from God and separated from our original purpose uh, as human beings. But through Jesus, we've now been reconciled to God and restored to our purpose as image bearers, people who show off who God is to the created order, to creation around us. That's what it means to be in the image of God. And then he looked at how we as Gentiles were brought into God's covenant family in Christ. God fulfilled his promise to Abraham when he said, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he's fulfilled that now through Jesus. So, so now we have come in on this same promise of God's redemption and restoration of all things. So uh, all the nations know God's blessings in this, that multinational multi-ethnic church is God's display of faithfulness as Paul saw it. Now today, Paul's going to mirror those themes, but in reverse. And again, he's going to highlight God's big plan in this. And remember, chapters one through three are all of Paul's introduction to what he's talking about. And the way he describes God's big plan is so different from how we hear God's plan described in our modern church. It's worth noting. It's something that I think we need to to sit back and look at for a moment. For Paul, the focus isn't on personal salvation, though that's included. Personal salvation is included in all of this. But for Paul, the big reveal of what God is up to is found in a community setting. And that's what we're going to be expounding on in our text today. How is God's purpose revealed to the world? And what is our role as a church in the revelation of God's purpose uh, and big plan? That's what we're going to consider. So if you're there in Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to begin starting in verse 1. He says, when I think of all of this, think of all of what? Well, everything that he said in the first two chapters, and I'm not going to go back and explain everything that he said. You'll have to go back and listen to it. But basically what I was just telling you a second ago, when he thinks about this big plan of what God has been up to and what he's doing, I, Paul, a prisoner of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I've written, you'll understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to the previous generations, but now by his spirit, he's revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. You ready for it? Both Gentiles and Jews who believe in the good news, share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. So really quickly here, I want to, if you underline stuff in your Bible... Look at the emphasis words in this. 
He's got both and equally and part and same and belong. Now, your translation that you're using may have different words in there, but they mean the same things. Fellow heirs, fellow members, the same, partakers in Christ. It all speaks of this. These were the words that Paul uses to describe the emphasis of the good news, the gospel. And it has to do with the unification of people, of people groups in Christ. Not just individuals getting right with God. It starts with that. It has to start with that. So it's certainly included in it. But it's more than just that. That'd be like saying, you know, try. I'm, I'm going to describe football, how football works. Well, they kick the ball off to the other team, and then I quit talking. And, well, there's a little bit more to it than that, you know, when it, when it all plays out. Oh, he's using football analogies. Oh, it doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying. There's more to the story than just the individual salvation that we receive. It has to be more. These unified humans receiving the blessing promised to the nations in Abraham is what Paul saw as the result in this world of the gospel's work, the unification of differing people groups. All right, keep that in mind. Verse 8, though I'm the least deserving of all God's people, Paul says this frequently because he was a persecutor of the church. Someone, the most unlikely person for God to use as an ambassador for this is he. He graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church, was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, now that could be translated a different way. It could be because of Christ and his faithfulness. It's hard to tell on that. It's a little bit tricky. So it's either because of Christ and his faithfulness or because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. Now, I don't even have time to get into this amazing reversal of the world's priorities or values in that last statement there. But again, it goes back to even what we were praying for today, the, the cost that oftentimes comes with, with committing ourselves to Christ. But there's, like I said, there's a lot going on here. As I pointed out, uh, verses 2 through 13 is basically a, a side note uh, on his train of thought. But man, what, what a side note that he provides for us here. It's just incredible how his brain worked. I mean, it suddenly occurs to him that maybe, you know, they don't know he's in prison for the gospel's sake. So he tries to quickly explain his connection to the gospel. But in so doing, he unlocks this incredible view of what it is he sees the gospel doing in this present world. So right off the bat, here's what I believe he's saying in this, because I know this is a little dense, okay? I, 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 I feel your pain if you're looking at this. I don't understand what he just read there. I get it. But, but here's what I believe he's trying to get at here, that we rightly represent the good news, the gospel, when unity in Christ is our priority or becomes a priority of God's people in the church. You know, as we pointed out, what he saw the gospel doing was bringing people together in Christ. And in verse 10, he describes the the church's purpose 
in this is to be a display of God's wisdom in its great variety. In other words, through all kinds of different people, God's wisdom is able to be made manifest to all these various perspectives and views. And, and who this wisdom is displayed to is really interesting to me. Because look at it again, just really quickly here. He says, the church is to display God's wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Like, I have so many questions about this. Like, who? What? Like, why them? Why to spiritual powers? Why not unify people as, as a display of wisdom to all the other people of the world who need to know this stuff? So what's really interesting about this, and it takes us back to, to chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul described how we used to be in bondage to or enslaved to the powers of the air. Remember that? It, it, the NLT worded it, the unseen powers. But he's, the, the powers of the air is the literal wording of it. We used to be in bondage to that, Paul says. And remember what we said back then. If we say something's in the air tonight, we mean like either Phil Collins is going to sing or that... <laughs> That there's something going on that multiple people feel is about to happen or they're about to do. We'll say things like romance is in the air or revolution is in the air. It, it means that there's something happening that everybody is attuned to and, and move, moved by or motivated by. For Paul, that something in the air was a power in opposition to God. And that power manifests by dividing people. In, in fanning the flames of an us versus them mentality. It stirs wars and injustice and power over people. It divides us into competing and hostile people groups. People groups dividing and at odds and going to war is the entire history of the human race. That is what we've always been about from the beginning of time when we recorded history. It's been a record of war and division. That unseen power of the air, that something in the air is at work to divide us. Paul is saying that God's big plan is to create a new humanity who's been free from what is in the air. People who are no longer pushed and pulled by the social, spiritual forces that divide along the lines of ethnicity or gender or economics or political affiliations or any of the stuff that the spirit of the age is pushing us to divide on. That something in the air is what orders this broken world in such a way that those divisions are magnified and those who are different from us are feared as a threat. Everything that's happening in this broken world works to emphasize that, works to reinforce that division. Paul said God confronts that power by creating one unified, multi-ethnic, multicultural community in Christ, made up of people who were at one time divided, but now no longer are in him. This Paul says, is God's plan. For Paul, the mere existence of that sort of community set right in the midst of this broken landscape was a proclamation of God's wisdom to all the forces at work controlling the shape of our various societies 
(laughs) the seen and the unseen. That means for the church, unity is a gospel priority. If we want to be faithful to the gospel, if we want to be faithful to this good news delivered to us of, of the work of Jesus Christ and the advancement of God's kingdom, then unity is a priority. We will think and live and love differently from the divisive nature of even our present culture. And remember, it's unity, not uniformity. That means in spite of all of our differences, our various social, economic, political, cultural differences that we have, the different perspectives that we have, we remain connected because of our trust in Christ, because we have an allegiance to him that transcends everything else. Differences, in Paul's view, did not mandate division, did not mean we have to separate. In fact, for him, he saw it as this amazing testimony of how all these diverse people can actually come together because of this incredible work that Jesus has done, that he is doing even now in pushing against the powers of the air. That's, uh, that's how Paul saw it. Okay, listen, there is so much in this. We could park on this probably for the rest of my life and, and not be able to get there. But for expediency's sake, we're going to keep moving on here. Paul's going to pick up where he left off in verse 1. His, his, his interruption, his digression changes. In fact, he's even going to repeat himself here. Verse 14. When I think of all this, it's exactly what he said in you know, verse 1. So he's back to the, okay, okay. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower y'all with inner, inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ, and oh man, just read this. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though (laughs) it's too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness and life and power that comes from God. Now, all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or, or think Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right. So Paul ends this letter here, or not ends this part in verses 20 to 21. And it helps us to realize the way he's finishing this up is that this is the conclusion of his introduction and prayer. So, I mean, it's like he does some really heavy lifting in his prayer which makes me think that nobody ever asked Paul to pray over the meal beforehand. Because like, oh, don't ask him. It's not like we got to take notes and it's the whole thing. So it's always cold when Paul prays. But seriously, there's so much in this. The depth here, the depth of what he's saying in this, I, I, I don't believe that in my lifetime I'll ever get to the bottom of this. This is profound. There's something incredible in this. When we look at what he writes, we see he's grateful to God that he's that God's empowered us with inner strength by his spirit. Inner strength by his spirit means like strength of character, 
strength of determination, strength to endure in our commitment to Christ's ways, to his purposes in this world that he was just describing. Then he uses the phrase that we normally associate with salvation experience, but he uses it with people who are already saved, and he puts it in a present future tense. He says, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Isn't that interesting? Because normally, like, we usually invite people to be saved by, you know, you can be saved by ask Jesus in your heart. But it's so interesting that Paul uses that phrase completely differently. And now we've made the point again and again and again that, that Paul is writing to a community of people. Anything that he's writing here, he's not putting these concepts out here for individual consumption. He, you know, it, all of this will... I'll have to keep qualifying this, but all of this will impact us as individuals, but these concepts apply to us corporately. As, as, and I don't mean just here. I mean corporately with the, the church at large. When Paul's talking about Jesus making his home in our hearts, he's using temple language again, like he did in chapter 2. And the idea is that the church community is being built together to be a dwelling place for God. In fact, remember, we could word it. Christ will make a home in y'all's heart as y'all trust him. It's a plural you in this. And then he changes up the metaphor. He's so excited, he just switches over into tree imagery. And the church is a tree with its roots growing strong in God's love as they dig deeper into God's love. And it all hinges. Everything that he says here hinges on God's love being made known. God's love is central to everything as Paul saw it. And I'll tell you, if you think that I overemphasize God's love here, don't blame me. I got it from Paul. <laughs> he tries to describe the cosmic scope of God's love, the height, the depth, the width. And he finally just, you know, he throws his hands up. He says, we can't ever figure this out. We're never going to understand this. It is an abyss that we will never fully grasp but it's also the, the center of everything. Everywhere we go, everything we do, everything we say, love is central to all of this. And the centrality of that love has to start, as we've said before, with our individual experience. We have to build our new identity on the truth that we're loved by God. But then Paul's focus here is on the communal engagement of that love. In other words, God's love is more fully revealed as we connect with one another in community. Now, I know, you know, I've said this many, many times already, but it, it bears repeating here because of how individualized Christianity has become in our Western world. And, you know, I've already said several times there is an individual experience each of us has, so don't misunderstand. But that's in microcosm to the larger movement that's happening here, which is that all of us as individuals reconciled with God now join together as his dwelling, as his temple. So we don't think in individualistic terms when we talk about God's temple. We think in terms of community as God's temple uh, in, in chapter 4 when he gets into the brass tacks of this what this is going to look like in real life 
That's what he even talks about, the idea of all of us covering for each other's weaknesses so that we, as a corporate body of people, can rightly represent who Jesus is. I'm jumping ahead, so we'll get to that later on. For Paul, it's in that context that we begin to experience, in that context of community, of of banding together, of joining together our hearts and our lives, it's in that context we begin to experience the height and depth and length and width of God's love as we experience it and express it with each other. It's when I'm able to experience and see life through the eyes of someone who's not me, maybe not even like me, that the world becomes more nuanced and more enriched and I see God's love from a different angle. I remember one time when my my oldest grandson was over at my house and this is when he was really little and we were standing on the back patio and our back patio is covered uh, over, has a ceiling over it and we were both just standing there and I don't remember what we were doing but all of a sudden he got all excited and he was pointing up and he said, look, look, it sees me. And and I'm looking up and I looked up and all I saw was Soffit. I was like, are you talking about the Soffit? What are you talking about? He didn't know what Soffit was. He didn't, you know. And he just kept saying, look, look, it sees me. And and finally, I realized, well, there's a size discrepancy here. And so I got down lower to see from his perspective. And from his perspective, I missed the soffit and the overhang. And I was able to see the sky. And there, the moon was out in the daytime. You know how it does that sometimes. And he was quoting from a children's book that he knew. I see the moon and the moon sees me. So, so here's the, the idea in this is that my world expanded as I saw from his perspective. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project puts it like this, I'm unable to fully experience God's love. That's a sentence in and of itself. But I am unable to fully experience God's love. There are dimensions of God's love that will always be locked to me if I don't get outside myself. This is why the church is central to Christ's plan. One of the first things he did was was orchestrate this, this church And of course, the idea of it being a communal effort, a community effort, grates on a highly individualized society like we live in. And I hear all the time, you know, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And my response is, no, you don't. You certainly don't need to go to church to be a Christian, but you most certainly have to be the church together to be able to practice the Christian life. There's no way that this works in isolation. It's hard to love one another when you're all by your side. You can look in the mirror. I love you, man. Back at you. But I mean, but we can't bring the gospel to life in isolation. And so, you know, we'll hear things like, you know, don't go to church and be the church. And that's not an incorrect statement. So I'm not saying that's wrong. We don't want to reduce the church's mission to just a service on Sunday mornings, but if that service is the time and the place that we've set to meet and develop the ties of community and begin to know each other of a meeting time, the the very term church, ecclesia, means people who've left their homes to assemble somewhere else. And and so going and meeting up with the church is still important. You don't want to just, you know, go to a meeting. You want to be the church, but if that church has agreed upon a time when we're going to meet, then that's important stuff. We don't want to diminish or denigrate that. 
but you know, and again, if we look at it as just logging in time of the service or getting entertained by a band or a teaching or something, then we're, we're not getting the experience that God intends for us to have in that. We're not being part of what it is that he's doing in that sense. Or I'll hear, you know, well, Rob, you know, I have, I have church on my surfboard at the beach or when I'm out in the woods by myself. That's where I experience God. And I'm always like, yeah, that's great. Those are great places to have an individual experience with God, but it's not church. You know, well, I have church on my way to work in the morning. Oh, that's great, but it's not church. Well, how dare you say that? Well, it's the definition of the word. It's a group of people gathering together. They left their homes to do it. You can't do that in your car by yourself or you've got other problems that I can't help you with. Church is a community of people, people who are not me, some who aren't anything like me, who I wouldn't probably connect with except for this common faith and connection we have through Christ Jesus, who is setting up an outpost of what it is he's about to do in this world on the earth, and it's called the church. That's, that's why it's important. And that's, you know, as Paul said in the first part of the chapter, is how the wisdom of God is put on display before the powers that control and shape these various societies in this divided world. The unlikely unification in God's love of people who would otherwise have been divided. That is the major emphasis of the gospel that Paul preached. And that is our testimony to the world. That is. So, we have to decide. Will we take up this challenge? What? What will the next generation say about us? What was our testimony? We are the church right here, right now. We make that determination. What's our testimony? What we leave them? Who is informing us? Do we get it off the air or the airwaves? What's our testimony? to the next generation. This is the one Paul wants us to have, the one I believe God intends for us to have. So let's take up this challenge of unity and love in Christ. Let's determine not to allow the us versus them mentality that's in the air to have space in our hearts. Let's remember that Jesus has freed us from the control of the spirit of the age. We have the power to step differently from that. And again, let's ask God to empower us to find ways to encourage our common connection in Christ's love. Let's be God's wisdom on display and bear one another's burdens and look out for one another's welfare, for one another's benefit. Like Susie was talking about this morning. It means we have to step outside of ourselves. And yeah, it's not always easy and sometimes it's painful. But this is the work of the gospel in this world. Just imagine a world if everyone looked out for everyone else. Imagine a world if everyone cared for their neighbor's needs. What a world that would be like. And yet that's the world we believe is coming. That's coming Jesus is bringing it back when he returns. 
So let's take this challenge to live right now like he's already come back, like this world's already a better place. Let's be that outpost that shows what it can be. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for Paul. I don't know how well I would have gotten along with him in in real life, but I'm so grateful for what he's written and what he's left us and how you, by your spirit, inspired these words that can ring down through 2,000 years and challenge me to my very core. I'm amazed at that, Lord. I'm amazed at your word. And so I just pray, Father, that your word finds its place in our hearts this morning, that, that we hear what you said through Paul, that we hear this, that we take this to heart and see to it that our lives are now shaped around the truth of your gospel, that we disavow what the spirit of the age tries to influence us to do. I just ask you to to work this in our lives, in our hearts here as the community of Eastgate, but in all of the representations of your grace and this gospel in all of the world. I ask you to do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Come rest on us. Come rest on.